You've read or heard or preached the scripture this week. So now what? Well, you can join me, Pastor Allen, and my colleague, Pastor Carissa, as we explore the spaces between the Sundays in our podcast, Soft Idolatry. Welcome to Episode 7 of Soft Idolatry. This is our last episode in the series on the Ten Commandments. And next week, we're going to be moving back to the lectionary, moving into 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy. Last week, I said 2 Timothy and left out 1 Timothy. I'm not sure how I uh, jumped ahead with that one. Uh, I was just not speaking eloquently last week, I suppose, because I also... Uh, misspoke when I mentioned the name of the author for the book I was reading. It is Catherine David's daughter, not Catherine Thor's daughter. Uh, Thor's daughter is Annie. Uh, there are a lot of women with the, the last name of something daughter in Iceland, and it gets very confusing when they're all competing in the same sport. So, And actually, it would be Thor's daughter. Uh, no, that's not actually how it's pronounced. So, Isn't it? Not in Iceland, huh? No, it is not. Not in Iceland. So. There were a bunch of Icelandic pastors at the Festival of Homiletics this year. Like a third of all the clergy in Iceland were at the festival. Weird. I mean, that could yeah. have been the CrossFit Games right there. Well, and, and they were, you know, most of them were like aggressively blonde. I love that term, it, aggressively blonde. <laughs> yes. I, I mean, it was it was really, you know, just kind of in your face blonde it was it was hilarious and and they all had names like katrin david's daughter or 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 the like yes well the naming convention in iceland is for a boy their last name becomes their father's son. first name yes. followed by son and for women yes. it's their father's first name followed by daughter so correct yes. that was that was typical scandinavian of a thousand years ago there was there is a Nobel Prize winning novel from the 20s called Kristen Lovren's Daughter. Um, and that uh, I saw a, a film version of it 25 years ago. It's really incredible. But anyhow, but but I digress. We both digress. That's not a hard, a hard thing to, to do. Uh, what are you reading this week, Alan? Anything new? Speaking of Scandinavia, I, I just finished the last... Uh, uh, just finished reading The Girl Who Takes an Eye for an Eye, which is the last in the uh, Lisbeth Salander uh, series The um, for, that begins with The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. Uh, so I've decided to move on to some serious reading, and it just started uh, Rachel Held Evans' Searching for Sunday. That is an incredible book. Have you read it before? Is this a reread? or a I have through? not read it before. This is the first time through, so... I, I am maybe seven chapters in, but they're short chapters. So right. I'm actually uh, still finishing Catherine's book and uh, just picked up 12 Habits for Christian Leaders, so Redeeming Conflict. So it's all about uh, overcoming, overcoming conflict and uh, disagreement in a ministry setting. So and one... which, habit, which habit are you on now? Well, I just picked it up, so I'm on the habit of reading the foreword. Okay. Yeah. How do you feel about finishing up the Ten Commandments? I can't believe looking, they're over already. I know. I, I'm I'm looking forward to it actually. Yeah, I always feel that way about a summer series. I get excited about doing the series because I'm tired of the lectionary in ordinary time. You can only preach on the bread of life so many times before you just are so tired of bread. 
And so I get this great idea that I'm going to do a sermon series. And then I get halfway through first Corinthians and I want to just pull my hair out. This is my first time doing a sermon series. Uh, so I, I, I have not experienced this before, but I, I, on the other hand, there are things other than the gospels in the lectionary. That is correct. That is correct. So if you find yourself pulling your hair out over doing the gospel reading three years and then another three years later, um, you know, take another try. We, we have that option. Yes. Yes, we do. We do have that option. And we have chosen the option of working through first and second Timothy starting next this coming week following. And that is not the only text that is in the lectionary but it is what we're going to be sticking with for all the way through All Saints Day, actually. That long? Wow. It's it's quite a long time in two very small letters. So we're going to be doing some real pulling apart of that scripture. Mm-hmm. wonder if it'll have anything interesting to say about the role of women. Oh, I'm sure it has loads to say about the role of women, as do I. <laughs> okay, well, we don't want to... Uh let the cat out of the bag so soon um sorry i was just thinking of uh, seinfeld and, and when when kramer's first name is revealed i was was not making any gender-based comments there got it <laughs> um what's your sermon title this week my sermon title this week is choose life i like it i like it mine was take care of each other mm, also appropriate did you have a supporting text or did you focus primarily on this Deuteronomy? My, my supporting text is the lectionary reading from Deuteronomy, which is Deuteronomy 30, which contains the verse, choose life. And uh, I, I really like that as a concluding set of thoughts because it gets into um, the role of our will and choice in living into God's promises. Um, I, I, I am working on sort of a big theological statement here. And at the core of my theology is that God doesn't do for us what we can do for ourselves. I would also say that the corollary of that is that God doesn't do to us what we do to ourselves. And in any case, I don't believe in a micromanaging God. So in that text from Deuteronomy, God is saying you can choose life or you can choose destruction of community by giving in to your petty impulses. And so it's not like God sends destruction as punishment to the Israelites, but they have the choice of destroying their community on their own by not following the rules that are set down for them in love. I think that's a pretty good summary of the commandments. And that's a similar place to where I'm going. I'm actually, I paired it with Luke 18, 18 through 30. Um, and I'll read that actually toward the end of the podcast, but it sums things up and talks about how the point of this is, are we caring for one another? Yep. Alan, could Mom? you 
Could you read this week's passage? Could I read this week's passage? Of course I could. This week we are looking at Deuteronomy 5, verse 6, and then continuing with verses 20 and 21. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, and you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, and you shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field, or his male servant, or his female servant, his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. So I want to start talking about lies. Okay. When I was a kid, uh, the false witness commandment was always simply taught as don't lie, which is not a terrible paring down of that for kids. Uh, children need things to be simplified so that they can learn them and build upon it later. The trouble is when we don't build upon it later and we leave it at thou shalt not lie. That's not what this is saying here in Deuteronomy specifically. Not some, at all. Some translations say you shall not tell lies about others. Okay. Which is an interesting translation. Mm-hmm. And this kind of helps to get us out of that quandary when people are thinking about thou shalt not lie. Uh, when you think about things like, when is it a lie? What if you're hiding Jews and, and Nazis knock mm-hmm. on your door? Is it okay to, to lie then? And those are interesting thought experiments. But if we get to mire down in the nitty gritty of when we've crossed that line, then we just go back to being the Pharisees busting Jesus for plucking grain on the Sabbath. We miss the forest for the trees. Mm-hmm. And, and and certainly it has the connotation of do not lie against someone in a trial. I mean, th- this is definitely in the context of a legal proceeding. Yeah, it has to do with someone's reputation and livelihood. And it, yeah, it has this this weightiness of it. It's it's more than not just lying. Um, yeah. So how else does this apply? Uh, I would say it's uh, about the things that we say about other people. I would even extend it to protecting people's reputations. And so that would include the things we listen to other people say, the other kind of speech that we allow to happen around us. I saw a German quote the other day, someone was posting it on Facebook. And it's, it just goes, 10 people sit down to dinner. One of them is a Nazi. The other nine say nothing. There are 10 Nazis in the room. Silence can be a form of participation. It can bear or at least accommodate or allow this false witness, this disruption of someone's good standing or good reputation. Um, it is kind of like sitting back and watching someone blatantly commit murder. If you just sit back and watch someone... Um, gossip and destroy someone's reputation or bear false witness in court uh, so that they get in trouble for something. Gossip on Facebook, you say? Does that I happen know. much? It, no, it doesn't happen in church either. But if it is Facebook, does that mean that we have to always be a one-person truth squad when we see an odious political post? No. I think it means we have to have boundaries, 
right? And I say that word a lot, but I think it's so important. You know, it is, I personally think it's perfectly fine to block or unfollow or unfriend someone on Facebook if they are just spewing heinous garbage, which a lot of people are doing on social media right now. They're uh, spewing heinous garbage that is untrue. And if what, you... What if, what if it's not heinous, but it is just a common assumption by one side or the other that is not based in fact? Do you have to truth squad that? I think you have to you have to know the audience. You have to know the person who's posting and use your judgment, right? This is a spirit of the law, not letter of the law. That's kind of been our point through all of these these episodes on the Ten Commandments is that it's about how we treat one another. And it is not always loving to just go and troll everyone who's posting things you disagree with. But if someone is out there um, giving somebody else a bad name and not necessarily like celebrity or big name people, but, you know, um, groups of people, then it's probably appropriate to say, hey, that is not cool, man. Mm-hmm. Okay. So what else is at stake if we just sit back in silence when someone else is, well, let's say bad mouthing someone? whether it's online or in church, spreading rumors, what have you. What else is at stake? Well, that, that person's reputation, the person who's being bad-mouthed, um, as well as potentially your integrity or reputation. For not getting involved or for being too close to the person who is being maligned. Uh, and I would, I would also say just the, the social cohesion of the group. So if it's a church thing, um, if, if that sort of, um, if that sort of false witness or defamation of what a member by another member is permitted to continue, it just, uh, it eats the congregation away from within. Right. And it, it just helps the whole system to rely on unhealthy habits mm-hmm. and unhealthy interactions with one another. Yes, and, and eventually it serves to uh, make someone the de facto leader of the congregation based on how he or she will cut down other people that are disfavored. Oh, yeah, that it's t- gossip can be a power play for sure. It's someone's way of saying, be on my good side and I'll talk nicely about you. But if you cross me, everyone's going to know. Yeah. Let's hope that never creeps into politics. I can't foresee how that would ever happen. Okay, so... I, I think we've we've explored this one pretty thoroughly. Um, what about coveting? Coveting is an interesting one. Yeah, I uh, I think it's different today than it would have been thousands of years ago, right? Yeah, I, I mean, this is not something. It's not a word that we use generally. Um, 
I know that it gets used in Silence of the Lambs uh, very effectively, uh, but no, we don't talk about it. And I think it is almost like idolatry that it's a sin that we do so much that we don't even realize we're engaging in it. Our whole popular culture is based around the idea of coveting. Uh, acquire more, acquire something better, um, get a nicer house, a nicer car, get a better TV, a bigger TV, buy, buy, buy. The, the interesting he thing here, the thing that I think is fundamentally different from 3,000 years ago, is we live in a society where there is so much stuff that what we covet isn't necessarily something that belongs to one person alone. Uh, we covet a lifestyle, we covet certain ways of being that, in theory, we can attain if we have enough money, but we don't necessarily have to steal something or take it by force as a result of our covetousness. In other words, we're not desiring something that our actual neighbor has, like their specific item. Right. Uh, or, or we might desire that thing, but there are so many other things like it. If my neighbor has a Mercedes Benz, I can save money, I can steal money, I can work extra hard, I can change jobs so that I can buy a Mercedes-Benz myself. Functionally, stealing his Mercedes-Benz will make it very obvious that I'm the one who has his Mercedes-Benz. But uh, the, the covetousness of, I want that thing that says I have this status, I no longer need to take it from my neighbor. But I think it still has the same corrosive effect because our eyes are focused on the things uh, rather than focused on God. And sometimes if someone has something that we want that we don't have, it colors the way that we see them. Correct. You know, you see a lot of uh, class clashes between people, the haves and the have-nots, and people who, you know, say, oh, well, those, you know, those people aren't working hard enough to have the things that we have. And then the, the people who are accused of not working hard enough say, oh, well, those hoity-toity people, you know. It's... Right. The, the people who have think that they are worthy and the other people are unworthy. And uh, the other people just see a bunch of rich jerks. Yeah. Yeah. So it still has that corrosive nature in our communities, it just isn't necessarily the thing that's leading to theft or murder or other cycles of retribution, but it certainly is an impediment to the community. It prevents people from associating with one another, having relationships with one another and actually living into the role of neighbor. Right. Right. So again, we sound a little bit like a broken record. After six weeks of going through the Ten Commandments, it still comes down to 
community, the way that we are treating one another, the way that we are valuing and seeing one another. And here in these last two commandments, it's about how we are talking about the people around us and how we are perceiving or thinking about them and their worthiness in a way of having what they have. And we have to follow all of them, not follow them selectively because the contamination of covetousness could lead to adultery, could lead to theft, could lead to murder. It could lead to corrupting your neighbor by asking her to lie for you in a trial. Uh, I could be an illegitimate son and I could murder my half-brother who stands to inherit my father's property and I could ask you Carissa to lie and say that you saw me on the day of the murder and I was nowhere near my half-brother and I could promise to give you a share of the property that I inherit. I didn't know you had a half-brother but we were definitely on my porch having a glass of scotch that day. Definitely. Yeah. And and you will continue to get glasses of scotch as long as you stick to that story. <laughs> you know, bribery is not in the Ten Commandments. No, it's not. But, of course, the reason to bribe someone is to get them to commit an act of false witness. That That is true. That is true. Uh, have you ever seen the TV show The Good Place? No. It's a fun little sitcom. I actually used this as a sermon illustration a couple of weeks ago, and a few of my folks had seen it. I have a lot of TV buffs in my congregations, which is great because I love a good story as well. And so I watch a shameful amount of TV, generally while I'm doing other things like laundry and dishes and stuff. So I'm not just sitting around. But um, in the show, there's this group of people who have died and find themselves in the afterlife. And there are two places you can go in the afterlife. There's the good place and the bad place. They don't call them heaven and hell, but they call them the good place and the bad place. And the way that you are evaluated for your worthiness is a point system. And each good deed you do has a point value assigned to it. And each sin that you do, that you commit, has a negative point value assigned to it based on the degree of badness of this sin. And if you score high enough, you go to the good place. And if you don't, you go to the bad place. Cute show, terrible theology. That is yeah. not at all how this works. No, it, it also sounds like a, an old uh, Father Guido Sarducci sketch from Saturday Night Live called The Wages of Sin. I have to look that up now. Yes, uh, classic classic you'll have to post a link to that in the show notes if we can find it on youtube <laughs> yes <laughs> um yeah but we we have been led to believe whether we overtly say so or not we sort of feel this in some way based on the way that our culture develops people that this is true that the more good stuff we do and the more bad stuff we avoid the closer we are to going to heaven and that that is not something that Jesus ever says. Not once. Not once. No. Jesus says, come and follow me. Uh, Jesus says, go and do likewise. Jesus says, feed my sheep. Uh, 
Jesus says, as you did this to the least of these, my brothers and sisters, so you have done it to me. He is not saying, no, you don't have to do good works. He is saying, follow me in those works and live accordingly. Right. That's why I've paired with this Luke passage this week, actually. It's Luke 18, 18 through 30. And a ruler asked him, him being Jesus, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, All these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, Then who can be... Uh, then who can be saved? But he said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter said, see, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God, who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. I, I love that that is so Calvinist in the beginning. It is really Calvinist in the beginning, yes. I, I My sermon the previous week was called A Good Person. And uh, among other things, I, I said that I hated the phrase, he's a good person or she's a good person, because it just doesn't tell you anything. And I thought about going full on Calvin saying, no one is a good person. I actually had a conversation with someone just this morning uh, it was the second time this week, interestingly enough, that someone in my life has asked me the difference between Presbyterians and Catholics. Mm. And, and it was it was a genuine and innocent question. And I, it's one that I know well and don't mind answering. But then that led to somehow talking about guilt and how people feel guilty about not going to church and things like that. And um, I said, look, I don't you don't have to be a good person to go to church. There are no good people in church. I was very, very Calvinist in this moment. Um, there was a lot of depravity talk. I didn't use the word depravity, but that was what was coming out of my mouth. I was like, we all suck and we just need somewhere to go to try and be better together. And it, and that's, that's what church is meant to be. That's what spiritual community, scriptural community is. It's a bunch of people who suck trying to be better together a bunch of people who are a hot mess trying to help each other be less of a hot mess so this all comes back to how we live with other people yeah absolutely this is about the preservation of the beloved community this is about living as God would have us live, not as a bunch of robots blindly obeying all the rules, but by creating 
a set of rules to keep our worst instincts in check. I think that we're done with the yes, Ten Commandments. Woohoo! Yay! I'm kind of, I'm a little sad to see them go. Um, I've... We can always go back to them and use them to guilt other people into believing as we believe. Alan, you have not listened to a single episode of this podcast, have you? Well, no, I've been talking the whole time. <laughs> That's your problem. You're all talk and no listen. <laughs> I'm sorry, what was that? Yeah, that's what I thought. That's not the first time we've had that conversation. So <laughs> moving on, we do have a spiritual practice for you this week. And this spiritual practice is to help you enter in more fully as we dive into the lectionary. Just a reminder, the lectionary, there is a daily lectionary and a Sunday lectionary. And it is a cycle, a yearly cycle of scripture that... The Sunday lectionary, many, many preachers draw from to determine what scriptures will be read on any given Sunday. It helps to stay with the flow of the liturgical, the church year. And it also helps to keep us honest that we're preaching through as much of the Bible as possible. I would probably, if given my druthers, basically stick with the Gospels all the time. And maybe but, Galatians. <laughs> but we had that wonderful lecture uh, lecture in homiletics about preaching from the left side of the Bible. Yes, we did. The left side of the Bible referring to the Old Testament, the part that's at the beginning. And uh, I do like the and Old Testament. And occupies at least two-thirds of the pages of the Bible. It does. It does. And so the lectionary gives us an option each week of an Old Testament or a Hebrew scripture reading, a psalm a gospel reading, and another New Testament reading, generally from the epistles. Generally, and sometimes there are more than just those four. Um, right. Sometimes the uh, lectionary editors will offer a couple of different threads in the Hebrew scriptures, and, uh, and then there will be different psalms to support those threads. So it gives a lot of flexibility, and... It keeps me from preaching on Matthew 25 every week. That's an easy one to preach on every week. It sure is. Nobody is good enough. Nobody's good <laughs> enough. Be better, people. Be better. Be more righteous. So in order, if you're not familiar with the lectionary or you would like to become more familiar with it or be reading through the same kind of things that your pastor might be reading through right now, we have posted in the show notes a link to the daily lectionary as well as the Sunday lectionary. So you can choose either to look at the daily scriptures for each day, or you can choose to look at the Sunday and holiday scriptures. So there are holiday scriptures in the Sunday lectionary because not all church holidays fall on a Sunday. Yeah, so check those out. Uh, it might give you a window into what we're doing. Certainly, if you have questions, it really helps when you come to us with a piece of scripture saying, hey, what's going on here? And then we can look at it together. And if possible, I can show you threads from the Old Testament reading to the gospel reading or from the psalm to any of the readings. So 
it's it's just a a good way of seeing how seeing how the moving parts fit together while they're moving. Alan, would you mind closing us with prayer? Not in the least. Let us pray. God, we all suck. We all fall short. We all fail to love and live as you would have us love and live. Guide us as we attempt to love one another and be less of a hot mess. In Jesus' name, amen. Friends, may the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. Amen. That's a wrap. We're done with the commandments. Woohoo! Yay! No more commandments. Thanks for joining us on Soft Idolatry. For show notes and more information, check out our website at softidolatry.com. To send us questions or comments, you can email us at info at softidolatry.com. And if you'd like to help support this podcast, please become a patron at www.patreon.com slash softidolatry. That's Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.